at a certain point when you are an adult in the complex 21st century society that you're in, you need mindfulness. I think mindfulness in itself can be addictive. One can get a hit from it, which is quite similar from certain kinds of psychedelic drugs. You know, I hear tell. Hello and welcome to Do Mind, a podcast taking a fresh and proactive look at mental well-being. We're talking to people about their approach to their own mental health, looking at what it takes to maintain this in a positive way, and not viewing mental health as something that only happens when we reach those seismic breaking points. Whether this is practicing meditation, enjoying a healthier relationship with technology, exercising, spending more time in nature, cooking or time with family, we're talking about what it takes to find and maintain a happy mind. And what does that even mean? How does it make us feel and how does that change our lives? Our guests are entrepreneurs, wellness experts, politicians and musicians. Different worlds, but all willing to talk openly and honestly about something that has previously been overlooked. So, depending on when you were born, some of you might know our guest on the show today as one half of the 1980s pop duo Hue and Cry. Pat formed the band along with his brother Greg in Glasgow in 1987. And as well as still being a touring musician... And you can check out hueandcry.co.uk for ticket details. Pat is also a writer, a political activist and a futurist. He published a book called The Play Ethic in 2004 and has written for The Independent, The Sunday Times and The Guardian. He's also a curator of the Forward Looking Innovation Festival, Nesta's Future Fest. He's a keen meditator and he takes an interesting stance on the interaction between technology and mindfulness proposing that it doesn't always have to be such a negative outlook. So here's what he had to say. Hi, Hannah. And we're here today, you know, to talk a little bit about Pat's background, but also about his approach to mindfulness, mental fitness and playfulness, actually. So icebreaker, Pat, what was the first thing that came into your mind when you woke up this morning? Bottle of water. I need a long drink, and that's because I tend to kind of drink a lot of water before I go to bed, because that's supposed to be very good for hydration and development, but uh, it sends me streaking to the loo. <laughs> so, it's a hazard. So I thought, but I also thought I, want, I need water now that I'm up. So hydration is a big thing in life generally, but particularly for singers, and we can talk about that going down the line, but singers and water are great friends. So post-water, what does a day in the life of Pat Kane look like? It's a very slow and gradated start. It slides up to activity and which begins about sort of 10, half 10. I like to have about an hour or two in the morning to get my social media obsessions out the way. Oh, you have a social media obsession, do you? Well, I have many. Okay. Um, because of, because the one thing about uh, Twitter in particular is that it sort of surrounds you with peers that you choose and so therefore they provide fascinating nuggets of information from the get-go. But uh, I have a few, you know, hobby horses that I like to get ridden uh, before I get on with the rest of the day, which is usually to do with technology or or politics or the kind of the, the, the crazy horror show of contemporary public life at the moment. And then once I've got that done, I can settle down to things that are more constructive and long term. But I'm super aware of my slightly addicted relationship to social media, but I try to use it as a kind of set of peers of uh, people who I admire and who are sending out and framing the world in interesting ways. And I try and hang out with them for about an hour and a half every morning. Because there's a lot that's been kind of written and talked about in terms of not looking at your phone when you first wake up in the morning. But actually, do you find that kind of boxing that time off, so 
you've got your social media addiction out of the way almost and then your brain is kind of free to get on with the rest of the day. Yes, it's a news service. So I like to be a fully formed citizen, as it were, before I go out and deal with the rest of the day because the rest of the day is often a real mix and mash and mess of ways of taking care of myself as a singer, of answering freelance gigs because I do a lot of other gigs rather than the music. And then towards the end of the night, what I usually do is I watch... 10 minutes of Newsnight and BBC Two. I'm absolutely disgusted, you know, with the charade that's on display before me and then make preparations for mindfully going to bed. But in between that, it's a very varied life. So I like to start it off in quiet, um, in the semi-darkness, ideally, and uh, get my citizen's head on so that I can do everything else. So it's almost informing you for the rest of the day. It's reminding me of who I am. I possess myself. At that time in the morning, I take command of myself before anybody else gets to me. There's a beautiful line that Otis Redding sings in Sitting at the Dock of the Bay. I think it's the chorus or the bridge. He says, I can't do what 10 people tell me to do, so I guess I'll just remain the same, sitting here, resting my bones. Mm. And I think that's self-possession, particularly in in the world of flexible and freelance working uh, and portfolio working and multi-skilled working. A moment of that is incredibly important for me to start off during the day. Which is just so interesting to me because I view social media as almost not time for myself. I view it as taking me down rabbit holes. But actually, I guess if you kind of qualify that time as you're almost enriching your brain, you're reading what you want to read and you've got to be quite, I guess, strict with yourself on that. I think we've been developing a net etiquette over the last sort of 10 years and I think it's time to be sort of explicit about it. I'm hardly on Facebook because I find it such a strategic and conniving medium. And the thing I like about Twitter is that it's a public discussion, that it's very, very easy to mute people. And it's it's like a kind of water cooler experience. Mm. You know, people talk about, I've never really worked for large organisations, but I hear tell that when people hang around the water cooler or they're particularly pathological go out and hang out in the smoking den, people meet in a way and converse in a way that's chosen rather than enforced. You know, and I think a dose of autonomy, a dose of genuine self-determination at the beginning of a day is a good way to start your day in an incredibly demanding and multiply seductive modern media world, I think. But I use Twitter as one of my tools of self-possession. Meditation is another way to do that as well, but that's how I start my day. And do you meditate in the evenings, in the mornings? Twice. Okay. In the morning. I, I mean, I don't meditate for long. I meditate for about 15, 20 minutes in the morning and in the evening. And the meditation is quite simple. It's just breath meditation, which is very interesting for a singer, you know, because there's lots of diaphragm work that I do anyway, as in my singing voice from a place that's sustainable. Because if you do it from the throat, then your throat shreds and you, you can't do your gigs. If you do it from your trunk of your body, from your diaphragm, it's a sustainable singing voice. And it's, I've been delighted in the last few years to realise that meditation practice overlaps very much with that. And it's also about the experience of the breath moving through the body and to concentrate on that as a kind of fundamental anchoring of yourself in the universe. Everything else can then be observed if you attend to the breath. You can listen to the sounds of your environment. You can deal with emotions or memories that are troubling for you. You can deal with a whole lot of stuff as long as you concentrate on the breath. And you can imagine for a singer that's quite a thing to realise at this stage in the game. I'm 54, I've been singing for 30 years. I sometimes idly wonder what I would have been like, what my career would have been like if I'd discovered 
meditation earlier because there was some crazy stuff early on and it's a very crazy business, the music business, psychologically. But certainly in the last four or five years, I've found it an incredible tool for energy and and self-resourcing as a singer, meditation. And how did you discover it? What made you kind of, was there a point where you thought something needs to change or yeah. you just stumbled across it? Yeah, two things really. I mean, I come from, as is evident, the west of Scotland. Not a notably mindful place, very reactive for lots of different reasons, lots of collective pain and trauma, whether it's from the clearances or whether it's from Thatcherism or whether it's from sectarian Celtic Rangers stuff, wherever you want to place it or put it. But there's a lot of angry men in the west of Scotland. Sometimes that anger's turned in on themselves. So my partner is not from the west of Scotland and is not male. You know, she's a Dutch Indonesian Buddhist. So explain that connection. But that's the other element of it, where, you know, my kind of, you know, outbursts of frustration articulated as rage mm. uh, were just not good enough for her and are not good enough for her. And she said, you have to do something about this, not just for her harmony, but for yourself. Mm. She did a lot of research and brought a lot of papers to my attention, stuff on the web, talking about the toxicity of anger in the body. You know, the kind of pathologies that it generates, the, the chemicals, the bad chemicals that it loads into your brain and into your body, the, the, the psychosomatic consequences of stress, you know, in terms of tissue decay and organ decline and everything. So I thought, OK, I've got to deal with this. I did a very, very modern thing. I, I bought a Kindle edition of a book called Mindfulness. I, could, I wish I could remember what it was. Mindfulness in a Busy World. And brilliantly... It had sound samples in the Kindle text. Mm. So I'm reading away. I get to the point. I hit the sound sample. I put my white buds on. And anywhere, I can do this. So there's, there's, that's about as high tech as it gets as a route into meditation. And it was perfect because what it allowed me to do, because one's phone is, is on one all the time, is it allowed me to fit meditation into the interstices, the corners, the tight corners of a busy life. And uh, that's sort of what I've done in extremis, I mean, I do regularly morning and evening, but I, I have often taken 10, 5, 10, 15 minutes out before something major just to possess myself. And that's the way, I, that's obviously the way I like to, I hear myself describing it, and that's probably the way I like to describe it, is that what I like about mindfulness is that it is a kind of, I think the Buddhists call it non-attachment. So it's not attachment and it's not detachment. It's non-attachment, which what I understand to mean is you have a relationship to the thing that's causing you grief or the grief itself or the emotions itself. But it's a sort of observing, calm relationship. And even if what you're observing is a Tasmanian devil, try and find a way to observe it and try and find a way to break your reaction to it or to break your link to it just for a moment. So I find it very, very useful as a technique to get through a creative, multiply demanding life. And did you at any point kind of feel like your body or your mind was rejecting the practice or did you immediately kind of recognise something in it? Well, no, it's hard. It's hard because it's very, very similar to singing practice. And singing practice is horrible. Singing practice is about, you know, putting yourself through abstract instructions that often seem very, very far away from the joy of singing. You know, you're doing scales, you're, you're attending to how your body produces a sound. But when I understood boringness of mindfulness, you know, the kind of the, the non-stimulation of it, the emptying 
of the mind that it required, the ushering away of thoughts from the centre stage of your consciousness, you know, rather than, you know, totally entertaining. Once I got it meshed with singing practice, it made it then made sense. And it can be quite uh, delicious at times, you know, to be with yourself uh, in that way. I think mindfulness in itself can be addictive. One can get a hit from it, which is quite similar from certain kinds of psychedelic drugs. You know, I hear tell. I think it can veer at times if you overdo it into a kind of a, not a prepare, not preparing yourself for engaging with the world, but escaping from engaging from the world. I've heard other perspectives that say that the more that you meditate, the more your performance in the real world is, is absolutely optimum. Mm. So I'm going to sort of take that on board and explore that at some point. I'm going to maybe see if I can up my practice just to see what, what happens. But I've seen compulsive meditators around about me. I think it itself can be a rabbit hole. I guess, like anything, it needs to be taken as a tool rather than as a means to an end. Well, for some people, for Buddhist monks, perhaps, it can be, you know, the goal, the ultimate goal to meditate through life. But as many of us do, living busy, multivaried lives, you can't be addicted to meditation. You need to use it as a tool to help you through that path, I think. Yeah. I mean, the author... Yuval Noah Harari uh, reviewed his book for New Scientist about a year ago, Homo Deus. He's a Vipassana meditator, Buddhist meditator. And he's, he seems to have meditated so much that he's meditated himself off the planet, you know, mm. and he's sort of looking at the human species in a very, very limited, as a very, very limited thing indeed. I'm not going to, hopefully I don't want, I don't want to go there because one of the, one of my abiding interests is not so much the inner game as the outer game. You know, I wrote a book on play called The Play Ethic. And I think I'm very, very interested in the relationship between mindfulness and playfulness. As a musician, you would, you know, the musician's life is about playing with other people, literally. But, you know, you can do that in a way that, that the general creativity burgeons and flourishes. And you can do that in a way that drives people nuts. So uh, that's a very interesting frontier for me as well, is the relationship between mindfulness, playfulness, and sustainable creativity and non-destructive creativity. So that's another area that I'm sort of exploring with all this stuff as well. It's very interesting. Let's go back to the start. You kind of you started your day with two things, which to many people may seem contradictory. You're, you know, you're you're kind of being fed almost information by Twitter and then you also meditate. Well, not being fed, that's the very explicit thing. I'm choosing my peers consciously and I'm being fed by those who I admire and and I'm inspired by. That's quite a specific So you're feeding your brain, I suppose, with information. So you're kind of stocking up on your knowledge. You've got that and then you've also kind of almost taken your yourself out of the game a little bit with the meditation as well and, and that's how you start things off. How then does your mind feel throughout the day when you are in a good place? What does a healthy mind mean to you or or, or mental wellness or, you know, whatever we want to call it? Mm. And compare that to maybe what it felt like before you meditated or before you'd kind of explored some of these themes and anger and outbursts. How, how do they differ? I mean, a healthy mind during the day for me is a sort of sense that things are on all fronts are progressing and that I can I can connect them all up. What I find about contemporary, you know, big city life being a, a creative is it's very, very difficult to compartmentalise experiences that you have between one thing you're doing and another. So you can be having a, a convivial conversation with a friend and then, you know, four fantastic ideas come up that you want to go away and run away with. You can be having a conversation which is very business and commercially oriented and then someone pipes up something very, very 
personal. And you're off. What I'm trying to say is, is that you know a healthy mind feels like an integrated self. You know, we don't have this div- strict division between work and life. We have it; it's integrated. One of the great ambitions, one of the great collective ambitions of a good, healthy society, is is that we're not divided into these, you know, antithetical existences. You know, where we work is the thing we don't want to do, and life is the thing we do want to do, and these things are constantly clashing. You know, my my mentally and spiritually and emotionally healthy day is a day where everything seems to integrate, and things connect across boundaries, and people and ideas connect across boundaries. And it just feels like a very rich, unalienated life. And it's not always a financially secure life, so that can cause stress. So the idea that you wake up in the morning and you're, you're making conscious decisions about what you do for the rest of the day means that you have a sort of an angle, a relationship to big organisations that's improvisatory and not standard. And so therefore it can be feast and famine. And I think that's probably the biggest stress of all, is that you feel as if you are living on your wits and your relationships. But I think what I've learned by this stage in the game, by by being in my early 50s, is to try to kind of trust that the web that you're in and the web that you have created, which is what the Buddhists would say, you know, you have a kind of, your karma is the environment that you have yourself created. I trust it. I often feel as if there's a gap or there's a hole or things aren't coming through or things aren't building. I sort of trust my web trust the networks that I'm in, I trust the relationships that I've built up and almost every time the answer comes or the opportunity comes or the connection comes, that's maybe a slightly mystical way to talk about it but that's what it feels like to me and I've been doing this for 30 years, I'm generating a web of people and possibilities and I should rely on it and it will get me through any any problems that I face as a as a feeling, living, working person in this society. And, and I'd suggest you're probably quite ahead of your time because the movement now is very much this kind of slash career, so writer slash designer slash freelancer slash everything. And I think that your answer really kind of resonates with with a whole generation of people who are kind of struggling to find continuity across their whole lives and actually work blends into play. And how do you feel about that with your kind of, you know, you really place a lot of emphasis on playfulness. And do you mm. think that needs to feed into the work world and the creative world and then vice versa? Sure. I mean, I know quite a lot about play. I wrote a book called The Play, I think, in 2004. I talked to organisations and companies about it. And and one of the things I've been telling people recently about play, because it's an attractive word, I mean, it's quite an energetic word. You know, play involves people actively, passionately, joyfully doing things so... So a lot of people in the society like the idea that they are invoking play or supporting play. But what I often say to people is you need to look at the the deep science of play and what the deep science of play tells you is that play is a balance of risk and security, okay? If it's all risk, you know, then you don't take the risk because you feel as if you take the risk, it will be fatal. If it's all security, then no innovation happens. So play is a relationship between risk and security. And the best play, the healthiest play, the play that develops you, the play whereby you learn and you you test the world, experiment the world, prototype with the world and learn about it, is one that has some kind of secure anchoring. And generally what I would say to this generation, you can manage it to some degree, you know, in a freelance way. But I think we have to start arguing for a kind of politics of well-being and a politics of creativity. We're beginning to get that when people talk about universal basic income. I don't know if you've heard that. So universal basic income is that secure tie to not falling on the rocks when you try things. I think we can develop that a bit more. I think we can look at forms of housing 
that are much cheaper but are also designed for creative living. You know, so why wouldn't one be in a, in a low rent environment? But if it could also be a place where you do work and you associate with people and you come up with projects. So I think there's a whole politics of security, not for itself, that would support an experimental flourishing life. And I think that's the next stage. I think there's a lot of people who are making strong efforts to manage and develop their own personal energies. I think they're finding the others to do that with. So there's a lot of co-working spaces that are conscious and ethical. There's a lot of festivals that people go to where they confirm who they are and what they're about. So there are people are reaching out for ways to find contexts within which they can develop their best and their most qualitative selves. But I think they need to be a wee bit more militant about that at the moment and the play ethic was an attempt to say well what's the ethos of this and what do we start to ask for as a norm of a society and what are the politics that are consequent upon that so we'll see what happens in the next couple of years I don't think old Jeremy Corbyn exhausts it by any means but I think there are a couple of policy perspectives I mean student loans might be another small example of people saying I want to be able to seize my future in a way that doesn't just make me fall upon the rocks. You know, I want to be able to build a society in a networked, digital, fully educated, fully aware, globalised age that is better than, than what we have. But I think there needs to be a wee bit of collective institutions to support that. And I guess it's about, I guess summarising what you're talking about, it's about removing the risk factor. Not removing the risk factor no, completely, but... Mm. but allowing some element of the security that you've talked about that's involved in play so that, you know, whether it's universal basic income, whether it's, you know, this kind of almost a little bit of a safety net for people yeah. as AI develops and jobs change and of work course, changes. Of course, the whole automation and, agenda, you know, yes. The ability to be creative is going to be one of the biggest skill factors in the whole world because that's something that... The machines as, can't as do. ...as yet can't do. Yeah, as yet. But, but, <laughs> but the way that the, the whole system is structured, I guess, as you've said, does yeah. need to change. The universal basic income in relationship to mindfulness and well-being is really interesting because it's become this kind of cross-eyed ideological policy. You know, the lefties suggest it because they think it's redistribution of income. The tech moguls suggest it because they can see how to create the best conditions for creativity. I mean, they sort of say, I'll pay you well no matter what your status is, no matter how much kudos you have, if what you can do is the best thing I need to be done, and I will make sure that you are free mentally and intellectually to do that. So universal basic income is humming up people from all different angles, and what I think it bespeaks is the fact that in the next 20 to 30 years, the work ethic, the idea that any job that you do is good because it's a job and because it's functional and because you're seen to sort of fulfil the duties of the society, that's going, going, gone. But we're in the interregnum, we're in the space between the new models. I think the new model that's coming has to be sort of consciously forged. And I think if it's not politics as in representative politics, then it may well be, you know, smart young people dealing with things like blockchain and AI and automation and saying, you know, how do we set up situations where we get the benefit of this and where a good flourishing life gets the benefit of this rather than somewhere in Cupertino or Cambridge or Analytica or wherever it is. And I think a lot of the passion for that will be fueled by personal practice. And that's what I'm seeing at the moment. If I look around me, and we're in Shoreditch right now, but if I look around me in Shoreditch, you know, I see a lot of people who are throwing themselves at the latest technological opportunity, but are also yearning for a purpose for this and are yearning for ways to use their skills, not 
just for the bottom line, but for other stuff as well. And I think that's similar to what happened in the 19th century, you know, where the friendly societies turned into unions, turned into politics. I think we're in another wave of that. But I think the thing about the information and the knowledge economy and the information revolution is that uh, it asks you to be not a, a proletarian, as I put it in my book, uh, but a solitarian. You know, what is required from you from the system is that you give your full self, your emotional self, your intellectual self, not just your physical self, to the organisation and the company. And I think you can't give your whole self. And even if you want that company to do well, you have to try and give your best self. And to get your best self is to possess yourself. You know, for you to be at your best, you must be an autonomous human being. And I think that sense of self-possession is a real desire in this generation. And part of what I'm doing in other fields is trying to figure out how to make that shape the way that policies and programmes work in, in the wider society. And I guess as well, that's going to take quite a seismic shift in the way that we think about ourselves and our self-worth because Mm. you know for lots of people for a long time your nine-to-five job has been who you are your self-worth is very linked to what you do in that office in a very traditional environment And, Mm. and obviously all of those kind of structures are breaking down but I think you know if we're talking about creativity and and kind of really committing to yourself your sense of worth and how much you're worth and what you earn in relation to someone else is actually going to be linked much more to your kind of your whole self, your creativity yeah. and what you can bring to the table. That's a very astute point. But, you know, this goes way back. One of the researches I did for the play ethic was to go back into Puritan literature of the last sort of 200 years. And there are literally phrases that come out from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which was you know, getting people out of their freelance existences, actually, telling them to stop having their three-day weekends, their happy Mondays, and get them into the factories under the clock to be part of the regimented system. And the preachers at that time were thundering from the pulpits, the devil makes work for idle hands. And here, this is my favourite, the soul's play day is the devil's work day. <laughs> An actual phrase from 18th century pulpits. That is persisting right up to the present with some elements of working society and some elements of politics, but there's a huge resistance against it. I think that the systemic trends and changes that are coming are going to compel new policies and new organisations that will be fit for us. But it has to come from bottom up as well as top down. I think there's a militancy. In the book I call them lifestyle militants. But I think there's a militancy about the quality of your life. I'm not going to settle for this. I'm going to hold out for a better choice that is communicating itself, you know, even within the system as it stands, to organisations that think they want the most talented or the cleverest or the most dynamic or the most inventive people, well, they're finding out that those people turning up in their interview places are not accepting stupid conceptions of corporate or occupational duty you know, or routine. They're just not. So I'm quite positive. And I think the positivity of it is that there might be big level systemic changes, but people are voting with their bodies, their minds, their souls, their hearts, their feet, you know, for an expanded sense of their own of their own worth. You know, and the more that develops, the better we'll use our technologies. You know, the more that we'll have a human that humans will command the machines rather than machines commanding the humans. But the spiritual mindful culture and subculture that's totally evident to me amongst the the, the, the X's and the, the Y's and the Z's, not so much the X's, but certainly the Y's and the Z's of the generations is very encouraging to me. And with that kind of positive outlook on where we're heading think 10 15 20 years ahead and 
we've got this kind of bottom-up, conscious, mindful movement, and then hopefully we've got some big systemic changes, some big technological advances. Mm-hmm. The world of work's changed. How can you see things looking in in kind of a couple of generations' time? Okay. The bit you missed out of your picture is, is the onrush of climate change and global warming, which will compel us to be a less a materially wasteful and less consumerist society in any case. So, you know, automation, robbing people of their standard boring jobs, developing countries, you know, picking up those routine jobs and taking them into their stage of development and climate change coming along and saying we have to decarbonise or zero carbon uh, consumer economies is a real trifecta of challenges, major challenges to the way we live now, to the feel of our everyday lives, to business as usual and to society as usual. So I think what I'd like to see in 20 years' time is this culture that's moved from being production and consumption-based to being participation and creativity-based. There's less stuff around. Um, There are less goods being purchased in order to display status. There's more of an appetite for experience and intensity. What will make this work is that there's going to be a bigger turn towards the local and the social. You know, people are going to answer their desire for social pleasure from each other and not just by disappearing to a festival in their holiday time, but bringing that very much into their daily lives. So in order to affect that, we need basic income, we need shorter working weeks and we need a kind of almost like a completely different sense of what public services are, you know looking at the new technology and saying, well, you know, this potentially reduces the cost of everything to nothing. Well, why don't we make it a public good? And the consequence of that will be less cash in society, but that should be filled, if we're clever, we'll fill that with more mindfulness and playfulness and sociableness. And I do think the economy, as we know it, will shrink, but I think there's a sort of social economy or there's a kind of set of relations uh, whereby people come together to create interesting lives. So it's an interesting question, and I think to help us get to that nice place, that good place, that better place, we need personal militancy, uh, and we need a bit of public militancy as well. And I think we, I think someone needs to come up with a vision for the future. Uh, Rutger, I can't remember his second name, but he wrote a book called Utopia for Realists. Rutger Bregman, wrote, I would recommend this book to anybody, he wrote a book called Utopia for Realists, which just lays it out in a very clear manner. So all your mindful listeners, once you do your meditation and once you do your self-care, go and buy that book and read it and then read mine as well after that. That'll, <laughs> that'll give you the extra perspective. Good, good reading things. list there. Yes, yes. And, you know, this movement's already happening and we know that, you know, meditation and mindfulness can have a huge personal impact. And for generations to come, do you think that mm. it's really important for all people to kind of learn these skills? Like, I know you have two daughters. Do they both meditate? And, and what are your thoughts on kind of bringing these skills into society in a way that just normalises them? Sure. There's a really interesting story to tell about this, which is not that far away. There's a book, again, I'll give you another book recommendation called The Nordic Secret by Thomas Bjorkman. And what it talks about is it, what is the Nordic secret? Why are these societies so much better than anybody else's in terms of well-being, in terms of equality, in terms of reported happiness? What's the secret? And the Nordic secret is apparently in that in the 19th century, Scandinavian and Nordic politicians were inspired by German Romantic philosophy and people like Schiller and Goethe. And what they took from it was 
that it's really important to find spaces in society that develop character. And so they had, basically across all these Nordic societies, they had in the 19th century, as a way of building and strengthening their society, they set up and devoted public money to spiritual character education. And these things still exist in the Scandinavian and Nordic countries to this day. So I think the important thing is to think about your character. You know, I think it can start early. I don't think it can start too early because I think adolescence is developmentally about exploring taboos and boundaries. You've got, you've got to sort of crash through a few barriers to figure out how you get to be an adult. I quite like spontaneity and I quite like the way that we naturally develop to adulthood. I think play and experiment is a big part of that. But I would say that at a certain point when you are an adult in the complex 21st century society that, we're in, that you're in, you need mindfulness. You need to create a zone whereby you don't just react to everything that's coming down the turnpike at you. My older daughter is a production designer. She has got religion, actually, uh, recently, which is a surprise to me. My younger one is a performer, an, an actor, musician. She's appearing at the Young Vic in a month's time. And she picked up mindfulness just at Christmas and has found it incredibly useful for her to handle her own energies and the demands of the adult world that, that are coming to her. So... I'm not for mindfulness too early. I think there's a natural millennia, millions of year old developmental path that the neuroscience is telling us that we have to let people blunder their way through. You know, we can't be too angry at teenagers. They're just doing what they're doing neurologically and that's what's happening. It's something that certainly organisations that want to hire people that will do amazing things within those organisations should definitely have mindfulness programmes and mindfulness spaces and mindfulness awareness built into their organisational design. I think that's incredibly important and particularly important for people coming in to organisations from the get-go. I think if you feel, if you can display literacy and mindfulness as an organisation, I think you'll attract the most amazing characters to your task and to your project. And now you're obviously kind of moving in these worlds, so kind of forward-looking, very conscious circles where Mm. Mindfulness and meditations it's not a dirty word, it's kind of no, the norm. It's the norm, yeah. And how does that compare to your experience of the music industry and perhaps your youngest daughter as a performer? How How mm. is the music industry in terms of mental fitness, mindfulness, yeah. whatever we want to call it? It may be different now, but when I came into the music business 30 years ago, it was a rogues gallery. You know, it was a real place for the misfits and the, the oddballs and sometimes the runaways and, and the very damaged I think it may be slightly different now. I think it's become a more slightly more professional, middle-class, well-trained zone than the one I remember it being. One of the things that you know that stresses me about the music business is that when I look at performers who are just driven to the end of their rag, I think of Adele and her great vocal collapse, for example. And certainly, talking about the music business specifically, I think they could do a hell of a lot more to support their supernovas you know, as they streak into the sky. I think it's there was a documentary called Some Kind of Monster that was made about Metallica doing one of their albums and they were all having an incredibly difficult time and a therapist was there to kind of to get them through it, often parodied and satirised and, and laughed at. The thing about pop music is that the bit that's exciting about it is that people can achieve articulacy and expressive power in it coming from the most bizarre 
places. It's a bit like football in that respect. You know, it really is a platform for eccentrics from all corners of life to find a way to express themselves. But they often bring a lot of damage with them. And I think there can be 10 times more care of soul in the music business than there is. It's a strange business because often some of the most incandescent music is made by some of the most sort of damaged people. Mm. And, you know, I think it's an interesting question. Is that There's a lot of very, very profound questions there about sustainable creative careers, you know. What does it mean to do a body of work over 30 years and have not gone crazy in the process compared to doing, you know, supernova records but pegging out at 30, 35, 40, as many of my peers have from my own cohort in the late 80s so I'd like to stress the former I'd like sustainable creativity is a good idea and I think the music business can help a wee bit more in that respect and I guess that's where it differs a little bit from sport where you know we've been talking about mental strength for a Mm. really long time Mm -hmm. and actually top sportsmen and women Mm -hmm. meditate that's something that's already kind of in practice and I think Mm. in the creative areas it's just finding that balance between a very focused kind of balanced mind and that creativity that can kind of sometimes come from deep angst or unhappiness so it's it's finding a balance absolutely and i think there has to be a balance and i think this is where you have to be really sort of sophisticated and maybe a bit of neuroscience helps you in that respect i mean what the latest neuroscience is saying about the self is that we're all a great bunch of people you know there's lots of different selves you're roaming around inside of us and the mindful thing to do is to see which one is calling out to be present at any particular moment you know so to be overly mindful in a room full of musicians trying to get a song together is not a good idea you have to be reactive and Mm. you have to be playful and you have to be funny there has to be sort of you know jolts of energy in the room all the time so that's that but when you're doing you know a morning television show where you've got to sing at eight o'clock in the morning and the stress level is rising to a certain height, uh, take yourself away and possess yourself mindfully through mindful practice. I often wonder whether a more mindful society will generate different kinds of art. I think that's a very interesting question. You know, I think if you look at the way that art functions in, say, Buddhist or Confucian societies, it's quite different. You know, there's a desire for balance there or a desire for order and harmony, which is not punk rock. You know, and I think there are again big, big questions about the Western self and the Western mind and that kind of subject object division and the idea that I am here and the world is there and I must control it or master it or or wrestle it down that, you know, generates a certain kind of crazy minded art, you know, schizophrenic art. And I wonder whether there's the influence of China and Islam comes more to bear on the whole world i wonder whether i wonder whether culture will radically change and the kind of i describe myself as a post-punk and a post-punk says what punks do except they do it with gold lamy jackets and using jazz musicians right whereas the original punk says no refuse get stuffed three chords go start a band you know but the idea of it is refuse stop reject close down so that's powerful anger anger is an energy as Johnny Rotten once sang in Public Image Limited. And it is an energy. The clever, developed self of the 21st century just hovers above the full range of human energies and full range of human faculties and blends them beautifully. But aggression, to aggress something, 
is to force it to change, you know, and we need an element of that. There uh, needs to be a There bit. needs to be an element of it. But 10, 20 years' time, you asked before, I mean, I would love there to be these kinds of amazing psychological creatures that come along that have blended and combined uh, inner work, outer systems, uh, ways of living. I think yesterday it was Martin Luther King's anniversary of his sort of death and we're sort of, we gaze in wonder at someone like Luther King and think, where are the leaders like that today? Where are the people who you know, completely throw themselves you know, at the forces of history without a care for their own sort of safety? You know, I'm sli- I'm somewhat hopeful that those kinds of characters will come to be again, but I think they'll come at much lower levels. You know, I don't think we need to, we'll be focusing on the Obama or the Martin Luther King or the Gandhi. I I actually feel that they'll come from much lower levels. Social I mean, come influences, from social and conscious people consciously living mm. and consciously changing the circumstances and consciously creating structures that suit their perception of the world. I genuinely think that's coming. And I think it will be a leadership that's distributed and it will be a leadership function that people say, well, I want to make something happen. I'll find the others, we'll agree our values, we'll reach for the tools and we'll build it. I think that's a diffuse kind of leadership. It will come from people using mindful practices to develop themselves and possess themselves and then shape the world for, a, for better. And I absolutely believe that. And as a kind of closing thought for for those conscious livers and maybe people who, who aren't quite there yet, but, hmm. I mean, you've given us a couple of books, book recommendations, but hmm. where would you start? You know, what do you read? What do you listen to? Where where should we send these people? Okay. I've just got some stuff I'll do you off the top of my head. There's a podcast called Expanding Minds by a guy called Eric Davis, E-R-I-K Davis. And if you want to hear, you know, an extraordinary journey across what is called contemporary psychedelic consciousness or the cultures of consciousness as he calls it that's the place to go come straight out of california but he's a really smart guy in your theology phd and he'll be a map for you sometimes a wild and crazy map to people who are trying to devise tools to possess themselves in the 21st century he's great i mean I, i'm a great fan of festivals you know so i think there's a there's a couple of festivals that really are very good there's a festival called noisily that we're going to which i think is very very mindful i think people should try and start up their own festivals there's a great book called dancing in the streets by barbara ironreich and it's called a history of collective joy and it will really give you a sense that to come together with like minds to create spaces within which a better consciousness, a better awareness of yourself can be generated and then it can have real material consequences. This book gives you the history on that from prehistoric times right up to the present. And the third thing I would recommend is uh, a book on called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Finding Peace in a Frantic World by Mark Williams. And again, what's great about it is if you buy it on Kindle, it has all the guided meditation clips in it. The man has a wonderfully attractive soft northern voice who you couldn't not but love and it will allow you and your earphones to zone out in the middle of the day, possess yourself and then come back to the world like a frolicking phone. Well, on that note, I mean, <laughs> how can we how can we top that? Thank he you. He's not paying me for that. Review, but anyway, he, <laughs> he should, should be. be. He should be. <laughs> thank you so much, Pat. It's been wonderful. Hannah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you 
for listening to Do Mind as we take a fresh and proactive look at mental well-being. Please subscribe to the podcast on your listening platform of choice. And for more information or to get in touch with us, please visit domind.co. We'd love to hear from you. 